0: You're listening to The Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show.
1: Hello and welcome to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Podcast. This is your host and friend, Dr. Alonso Osorio, right now broadcasting from my own home in Tampa, Florida. It's almost uh, 11 p.m. and I just finished my shift And I'm going to tell you the truth, uh, guys. Today was a rather humbling shift for some reason. Today was Cancer Day in which uh, I took about six patients with the new onset or already established diagnosis of cancer. But it was a remarkably tasking day because it drew too many emotions from me. It made me feel remarkably sometimes sad and upset. Not many people take it the right way. One thing that really kind of broke me down is that a good friend of mine uh, walked in with his wife, and they called me about an unfortunate result on an X-ray. And I told him to come in to be assessed and determine if it was really cancer or not. And they're the sweetest and nicest people, I'll tell you the truth. The only patients that get bad illnesses are the ones that are nice people. And for me, not to have 100% diagnostic certainty sometimes makes me frustrated, but I think I got the closest possible to kind of give them an idea of how bad the situation was. And especially being a good friend of mine, it was really difficult. So that was lung cancer. The door next to that one, I had an elderly lady, probably 20 years older, with the same condition, the same malignancy on the same side. Then later on, I had a lady with a urogenital carcinoma with similar situations with obstructive urologic complications that uh, make me feel remarkably sad because she was septic and altered regarding to a urinary tract infection due to tumor burden and and talking to the family was a little bit difficult. And on the next room, I had a patient with lung cancer, again, metastatic to the brain. Uh, and he was having some visual changes and he happened to have on the CT scan this very large right-sided occipital mass that was obviously giving him Vision changes due to the location of the lesion. And I got home, had a beer, relaxed, sat down, and thought about doing episode number six. So on episode number six, I want to try to recap the reason why we are here. As you all guys know, there is a growing need for doctors in the United States, and there is a growing a shortage. There is an expectation of um, by 2025 of having a large amount of physician shortage in the United States, and the problem is that the United States accredited medical schools cannot really have the significant output and throughput of graduates to provide physicians for the healthcare services of their population. There is a limited number of medical schools, and they're rather expensive. The amount of positions are really small. To get into these um, medical school programs in the United States is highly competitive. Now, in the U.S., what I'm hearing from some paramedics and technicians that are working in the emergency room is not only being a good student, having fantastic grades, but it seems that every candidate is having every day more and more qualifications added to their curriculum vitae, their personal statement that makes them stronger and more powerful. They're volunteers, they're connected, they're doing this, they're doing that, community activity. They travel overseas, they do missions, et cetera. And and, and it's remarkably overwhelming for these kids sometimes to try to make it into medical school. Sometimes even after the four years of undergrad, they have to go and have a master's degree on medical sciences or a master in public health Sometimes a master in business administration, uh, a master's on healthcare management, and they then they need to come back, increase their GPA, and come back and actually reapply to medical school. On top of that, many of them have extremely good letters of recommendations, and you know this is just making things more difficult for foreign medical grads because as uh, soon as these American grads go into medical school and they graduate, they wanna. Compete for residency positions during residency training. And that's when we come in as foreign and international medical grads to try to play a role in filling the vacant and the needs of the United States. Many of the doctors of the United States, I would say about 40 to 50% of the workforce are foreign medical grads. It's not unusual to find a great variety of different. In, Ethical uh, ethnical and racial backgrounds and language backgrounds, different accents, different cultural inputs on a daily basis on professional interactions and by just looking people in the hospital, you, you realize that there is pretty much a half, half a percentage of people that were U.S. grads and foreign medical grads. So we definitely play a role in the healthcare system of the United States. Uh, Specifically, uh, like in any other country, the workforce is mainly concentrated in the large uh, metropolitan urban uh, settlements or cities, and in rural America, it's remarkably hard to get physicians over there. Also, in the United States, the medical specialties that are surgical, since they have procedural skills involved, they get paid much better. When you compare them to those specialties like internal medicine or pediatrics or family medicine that are more thinking type of specialties more than really doing a procedure or an intervention, the relative value unit system that has been established in the United States by the ROC, which is a subcommittee of the... Center for Medicaid Services and has some significant influence by the medical societies on how every relative value unit or RVU is going to be reimbursed to physicians across the nation. And obviously, orthopedic diagnosis, neurosurgical diagnosis, cardiology interventions, et cetera, and et cetera are paid in a much higher fashion than for a regular medical consult, an infectious disease consult, family medicine consult, an internal medicine consult, et cetera. So, having said this, most of the American grads want to go into highly competitive surgical interventional programs that will be paid at the end of their training, after five to nine years of residency plus fellowship training, a nice good chunk of money to be able to pay back those huge student loans that the American grads come out with. I would say the average of medical grad has somewhere in between a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars in medical school and non-medical school loans, including undergrad, master's degrees, etc. If this was actually their only medical career, maybe more. If they have done something else in the past, which I have seen cases in which they have had a complete different life in a complete different background of uh, performance, like being a an attorney, and then coming back to medical school, etc. So, for us as foreign medical grads, we're coming to the United States, submitting credentials from foreign medical schools accredited by the International Council of Medical Schools that have been approved, and we come here with no letters of recommendations, uh, sometimes a an accent that is hard to understand in some significant personal cultural background that needs to be adjusted with the lifestyle of the United States uh, environment. In my personal case, as I said before, I wanted to be an emergency physician from day number one, but it was extremely competitive to make it into the specialty and the residency of my choice That's why I had decided to go into family medicine first before I actually match into emergency medicine. As we move into the next few chapters of our discussion, we're gonna move into the requirements of the residency training, but having said that, in my personal case, I did apply to emergency medicine when I came from Colombia And during that first application process, I did apply to about 125 residency Mm -hmm. trainings in emergency medicine back then. And I do remember that the price was quite hefty uh, to rank and apply to those programs. I had done 12, 13 months of medical observerships at the University of Miami, uh, the Jackson Memorial Hospital through the William J. Harrington Latin American Training Programs. And... I got some decent letters of recommendations, obviously um, not as good as many that I saw later on from some other applicants. And with those rotations, my credentials, and some very decent passing scores in USMLE step one, two, and I had taken by then before I even applied to any residents in the United States, uh, step three and the clinical skill assessment. I guess that now is altogether mixed into step two. With all those credentials, I presented myself to my first match, and uh, as the match day came in March, I was not able to break into any program, and I saw myself going for the scramble. The scramble was the day after the match in which many of the residency positions were being posted, and they went into a website, and immediately, as soon as those numbers, phone numbers and program uh, names were released, you were meant to contact these um, residency programs on your own. I do remember being in Miami with my friend Hernan Paon and Carlos Fernandez. And we opened about five or six different emails accounts. And I was uh, using his fax and the landline and the cell phone to try to get a hold of these programs. Most of the phone lines were occupied. When they answered, they said that the positions had been filled. When there was no landline, I was sending emails and uh, automatic replies were coming through my inbox that the program had been filled or that they were thanking me for their application, etc. So it was a very frustrating, grueling process that I think lasted probably five or six hours. We were sitting in three different rooms uh, in the apartment and we were just constantly working at that and it was just exhausting. By the end of the day, I got contact by a residency program uh, in Nebraska. And a week later, I received a letter of invitation to attend for an interview with a very large information package. I still remember, and I still have the booklet that they sent with the information about the University of Nebraska Family Medicine Residency Program urban underserved track. What all that means is is that south of a certain highway, the government has determined that that certain area of population is considered medically underserved, which means that there is not enough physicians or providers, including nurse practitioners or physician assistants, to fulfill the demands in healthcare needs for that population. So, that specific uh, path of this, um, of my residency program was dedicated to work out of what used to be called the Indian Chicano Health Center, which within a year or two of me being there became an extremely large building funded by federal funds, private contributions, and donations in participation of the local and national governments too get this amazing medical building up to par to the current standards, and it was uh, named after uh, one world community health center, uh, rather impressive, uh, offering dental services, psychiatric services, physical therapy, respiratory therapy, primary care in pediatrics, overall family medicine, gynecology, Etc., with a few volunteers participating in the clinic on a regular basis, providing their services for free. So I joined this program, I was offered the position, and the fact that it's underserved actually gave me the opportunity to potentially apply for a green card. And they offered me an H 1B visa status because of the fact that I had already had taking a step three, and I was eligible for this type of a specific work status. Uh, an H-1B means that you're a qualified professional from overseas that will come into the United States to provide the skills that nobody else can provide. And these H-1B visas are limited by the President of the United States, and they're given to different uh, fields of technology, healthcare sciences, etc., across the nation, and there is a specific percentage of people that get those. They're also allocated by states, populations, and density of uh, physicians in the area. In this case, the south part of Omaha, Nebraska was considered underserved, and it was mostly African American and a Hispanic community with very low access to health care services. So I joined the residency program, I'm very optimistic and extremely excited about the opportunity that has been given to me, but at the same time, a little sad that I was not able to match in the specialty of my choice at the very beginning. Uh, no matter what, I studied really hard and it was a very good opportunity to get accustomed to, to the healthcare system and how to proceed in teaching hospitals. and. And how to interact with patients in the United States. Despite the fact that I was doing most of my medical interactions at the uh, clinic in Spanish, uh, a huge percentage of the interactions in my outpatient clinic that I had three times a week were done in English. Also, my rotations, you know, included rotations in the military hospital in early. Uh, Offwood Air Force Base in uh, Offwood, Nebraska, Early Berkeley's Hospital in Offwood, Nebraska, and the VA Hospital of Omaha, Nebraska, the Methodist Hospital, and obviously uh, the main facility, the University of Nebraska Medical Center, uh, large, large hospital in the area, which was considered a teaching facility, level one trauma center for the area. Omaha, obviously, was a surprise to me because uh, from Florida, I ended up in the middle of the United States with extremely harsh weather temperatures and um, sometimes a little bit of a close-minded community as you went into the rural areas. So I went and I did my best job during my first, second, and third year, and I think I had a pretty good residency but uh, i always had the need to fulfill the gap of matching into emergency medicine so during my first year i immediately started doing electives and rotation in the emergency department and i was spending quite a bit of time talking to dr michael watman who was the residency director for emergency medicine at unmc that had just barely opened and by establishing relationships, I thought that in the near future I was going to be able to potentially match and change from family medicine towards emergency medicine. Obviously, that didn't happen. I did apply again to a hundred plus residency programs, even including to the University of Nebraska. They were cordial enough to give me an interview, but unfortunately, I was not matched. I think the first class had like three or six uh, spots and. The amount of applications was in the thousands. And that's not unusual, actually, to see here in the United States. Here, when I was part of the Residency Review Committee for the new applicants at uh, USF in my emergency medicine residency, uh, I was looking at uh, stacks of applications, sometimes reaching numbers as outrageous as 1,500 for 10 residency spots. So I applied. I didn't match. The second year, I did the same thing, rotated in the emergency room, interacted with my colleagues, the residents in emergency medicine, the attendings in emergency medicine, and I did not match. The third year came around, and I had to decide where I was going to go from there. So as a senior resident in the family medicine program and having an H-1 visa, I had to figure out what I was going to do. That was my three applications this far, the one that I didn't match initially in emergency medicine, and I took my spot in family medicine, then they went on the first year, and then they went on the second year. So, as I figured myself what I was going to do with my third year and my labor certification process, because I didn't want to go through a whole headache of coming back to Colombia, I had been already moonlighting in the state of Iowa with a full practicing medical license as a doctor uh, in the state next door, which in Iowa you were back then only uh, required to have one year of postgraduate residency training education, pretty much done with your internship to practice medicine. So I had my Colombian experience that was quite extensive, but I never had really American experience. So as soon as I finished my... My first year, I requested permission to start moonlighting, and I would do two to four shifts a month in rural Iowa. The company that hired me was called Emergency Practice Associates, uh, located in Waterloo, Iowa, EPA. And the deal that I had done with them is that for two years, I had to work for them uh, in rural underserved. Hospitals across the state of Iowa. And if I committed to do that, they were going to sponsor my green card. So I headed that way since I had been already moonlighting with them and I was considered a pretty good physician in these little hospitals. I work in communities that I started from Harlan, Atlantic, Red Oak, Ottumwa, Muscatine, Washington. Mount Pleasant, New Orleans, Waterloo, Cedar Rapids, among others that I cannot recall this time. My main hospital was Mount Pleasant Hospital, and it's the one that they used for my labor certification process. And when there was need for me to fill uh, jobs in other parts, I had to travel. Just to make it to Mount Pleasant, it took me sometimes an hour, an hour and 15 minutes of driving, sometimes in the most horrid, medical winter conditions with block roads. And I was stupid enough to have had bought, having had bought a Mazda RX-8 with rear wheel traction. It was not an all wheel drive. It was a sports car with a rotary engine that was not really meant for that type of weather. And I remember putting tons of sandbags in the trunk to be able to get some traction and stability by even by just the very beginning, getting off of my garage, that sometimes was the driver was covered in snow. So that's a whole different topic for another conversation of anecdotes of how much suffering I had in in, in the Midwest um, with these horrible snow, cold, rainy, gusty, sometimes insane, freezing days. So I went to Iowa. And the company was kind enough, but obviously I was making $72.5 an hour. I was doing sometimes 12 to 24-hour shifts. Uh, I spent a lot of time in my call room because the volume was low. Probably sometimes hospitals that had only 5,000 to 20,000 visits a year. Now compared to a hospital like mine in the healthcare system, we almost... Take care of half a million of visits within all the campuses that we serve, and just within our main campus, probably a quarter of a million patients per year. So, if you can imagine the proportions that you that 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 we're managing here, having had been working in these little hospitals, it was just me, me, two, three, four treatment rooms and one nurse, no tech, and X-ray, CAT scan, and we didn't have MRI. Sometimes an MRI truck. Will come once a week. We would get an ultrasound technician that would come from home. And they were tiny hospitals, somewhere in between 10 and 15 beds, mostly run by family and internal medicine physicians that had been in the community for a long time. And as they got older and felt the need for retire, cut down on the hours, couldn't cover the emergency room and their practice anymore. So that's when contract management groups like the one that I used to belong, took part into this process and hired people like me. So there's a combination of factors. Somebody in need, like me, that wants to work hard and avoid coming back to his native country. Two, uh, they obviously use that as a lever for not paying you that much. And three, Obviously, they're doing a huge favor and they're sponsoring your green card through the Department of Labor. So it's not that easy just to get an H-1 visa. So I had already an H-1 for the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Nebraska. And I already had another H-1 through Emergency Practice Associates of Waterloo, Iowa to work for them in Mount Pleasant and the other hospitals that I just told you about. So once the, the status with the Nebraska Medical Center finished, I continue with an extension of that status with the H-1 in Iowa. And at the same time, I started contacting attorneys that held me in the labor certification process. I remember that they had to post my job to American citizens and American-born peers and American grads to see if they actually wanted the job. And it had to circulate in uh, a newspaper that had, I think, more than 20,000 runs on a Sunday, and do it at least for two uh, episodes. And along with that, it had to be uh, published in a distribution media, like a magazine or a journal, uh, that had like a little little classified advertisement about the specific position that was being offered to American citizens and also some sort of electronic media. And that meant the internet. After they ran this process for three months or something, and no American national born and raised US citizen accepted the job, then the vacancy is filled by me. And that's how I I got my position at Mount Pleasant, Iowa. And that's when I went down there for two years And as much as I love the people that I work with, it is remarkably tough to work in rural America. You're the only one, you are the person. By the second year of being in Iowa, I probably experienced the time of my life that I've been the saddest and most depressed. I was depressed about the fact that I had not matched into emergency medicine after three attempts. I was depressed that I was in the middle of nowhere, sometimes spending either extremely hot summers or extremely cold winters. I was working in small rural hospitals, practicing as an emergency physician, but not really as a family physician. And I think the drop that filled the cup was the day that a paramedic told me, well, doc, you're not a real emergency doctor, you're just a family physician working in the emergency room. And that was like a stabbing injury to my heart, and I realized that I had to do something. At that point in time, I was thinking about coming back to Colombia or going to Europe, and I was highly considering uh, to go and practice medicine in Australia or New Zealand because I felt that I was never good enough um, so after these two grueling years, uh, I decided to apply to emergency medicine one more time. I did apply to a hundred plus residency programs, another huge chunk of money. And I only got residency positions offered at the university of Iowa in Iowa city, Iowa. And that was given to me just because the residents of emergency medicine from University of Iowa were coming to do an administrative rotation at the offices in Waterloo for my company. They did say that they were going to potentially give me a spot, and I was counting on that. They were making the program go from, like, three residents to six residents, and despite the fact that they cannot say it out loud, it was suggested to me from my employer that they were going to make it possible and they were going to help me out since they had good business and political relationships. Also, by miracle of God, the University of South Florida with Dr. Kelly O'Keefe not any longer in in, in Tampa General, currently he's in Sarasota, uh, creating and started a new residency program for them by the way, Dr. O'Keefe, I really thank you for the opportunity, and I love you. Thank you for bringing me here. So, I got the interview, I got here, and this is where my dream came through. Obviously, I interview after having had applied to 100 programs only in two places, in Iowa and here in Tampa. Nothing happened in Iowa, And well, this is only, I only knew this uh, at the very end. But when I came here to the University of South Florida, Dr. Kelly O'Keefe made me go through the interviewing process. And I think I had a very good connection with him. I do remember it was a beautiful sunny day, and Tampa felt fantastic to me. Having come from Nebraska, I stayed in a fantastic. um, Bayside, Bayshore hotel with a fantastic view In a sunny day in Florida. Many people speaking Spanish around me that quote-unquote looked like me and everything felt a little cooler and, and and nice. So I had so many expectations. I was super well-dressed and I walked into his office. I think it was the f- second or th- first or second interview and I was properly dressed and... I walked in with a bag full of stickers that I have tabulated with every single patient that I had seen during my two years of emergency medicine as a family physician in Iowa. And I thought that those stickers were probably going to prove my experience, how many MIs I had taken care of, how many strokes I had given TPA. How many patients I had intubated? How many chest tubes had I done? How many ultrasounds had I performed at the bedside? How many x-rays I had interpreted? How many patients themselves I have taken care of? And I knew exactly, and I still to the day, have them all in a sacred bag that I carry with me. And I, I can tell you, I did walk in with lots of hope. And uh, by now I was extremely humbled by the overwhelming experience of being rejected once, twice, three times, and potentially a fourth time. So I think God showed up as a tennis racket, and I saw it behind the head of Dr. Kelly O'Keefe. I remember it was the old-fashioned Wilson Pro Staff black graphite with a beautiful... Red, yellow, and white stripes, and I think the racket was broken. He had broken the frame, but he had hung it on a nail next to his uh, diploma from the United States military when he left the residency program in San Antonio, Texas. So I started talking to him about tennis, and I said, do you play tennis? I said, why, do you? He replied, and I said, oh, yes. And I told him what had been my professional career as a tennis player, how I initially came to this country as a tennis player, how competitive I was, and I even had an album that I carry around with my uh, uh, newspaper cutouts and news of um my international rankings in the ITF in South America and Colombia national rankings, etc. So I was ready, but we just kept talking and talking and talking, and I finished my two extra interviews. And suddenly, by the end of the interview number five, I was with Dr. Raleigh Hashtag, and he walked in and he told me, "Hey Alonso, come with me," and he asked me to ride on his car to the luncheon and that's when i uh was i remember riding on the front passenger seat of his black bmw and he told me well alonso would you be interested in taking on a position in my residency program i couldn't believe it i just simply couldn't believe it i thought he was lying or joking and i turned around and looked at him and said what and he said, yes. Um, unfortunately, has, I have a sudden open opening. Uh, I have fired someone from the residency program that was not meeting the standards. And I see myself short when resident. So if you really want to make it into the program, what you need to do is drop off the match, cancel your match submission process, and forget about any other program. and and join us here I didn't know if I wanted to cry to jump off the car I was floating in another cloud during the luncheon and I told him that yes I was going to accept the position no doubt and I traveled back to, to Iowa back then I was engaged to a nice lady from the Midwest she was a little crazy by the way um and when I told her that I had been accepted the position he had asked me to please contact the residency program coordinator Jeannie Dunn and when I called Jeannie told me that that Dr. O'Keefe wanted to talk to me and I remember he was going to ski in Montana in his house in Montana he was about to jump on a plane and he tells me hey Alonso I'm about to jump on a plane I kind of Uh, speak much longer, but I want to let you know that if you want to take the residency position, I want you in Tampa by February 1st. And I said, oh my God, Dr. O'Keefe, I cannot make it by February 1st. Can you make it July 1st? And said, why? I said, it's because my labor certification extends itself all the way to June 30th. And he says, okay, make it March 1st. So, with that information, I had to go and ask my employer to please allow me to start a residency program in in Tampa. I asked them if I needed some sort of payback and they knew how hard and how much I had worked for this opportunity. And the CEO and the COO came to me and they told me that they had released me of my duties and that I was free to move. Uh, The labor certification process had been granted. I had my green card. So it was the the perfect situation. I guess all the constellations and stars align one day, and finally, after four residency process applications and match fees, and grueling days and long hours and sometimes abuse and disrespect for patients, sometimes not feeling. Remarkably proud about yourself and feeling like giving up. Perseverance made me pull through and and got me here. So this is just my example. I bet that there is thousands, uh, if not more, of examples all across the world and specifically across the United States with similar experiences and people from many different backgrounds that have done the impossible to be a physician in the United States. So to wrap it up today, uh, I want you to please uh, follow my webpage. I I don't know if you have seen that I recorded so far three videos that are going to be connected specifically to my Facebook page. And I'm in the process of creating a YouTube channel. I'm also in the process of creating a document on tips on how to succeed in America. And I'm going to put it out there for free. The only thing that I need from you guys is to... Join the website and give me your email address so I can add you to my new uh, newsletter and have you in my contact list. Obviously, if you're in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, I would truly appreciate any positive feedback. Since this is a new podcast, I would appreciate only fantastic five-star reviews. Anything that helps to put me up there in the rankings will really, really make me extremely happy. And... I'm doing this out of my pocket I'm not uh, looking for any payback about this so far I have spent more than probably two thousand dollars in equipment set up uh, LLC creations with you know through legal zoom um, uh, also supplies books that I've done research and read about for you guys that I have material to share in the near future and and many other things that I have done to to bring this information to you I also pay for the editing services uh, to a British company called Next Day Podcast who I really want to thank for what they have done for me this far they've been fantastic and James uh, one of the senior producers has been always in contact with me and has been extremely helpful and Through this process, he has made things very smooth for me, and I have only but good things to say to him. So, thank you, James. Thank you, Next Day Podcast, and I really want to thank you all for listening to my show. Leave me some feedback. Go to my webpage at wwwfmg imgcastcastcom that's www.fmg-imgcast.com. Follow us on Facebook. Uh, I have a also a Twitter channel, which I don't use that much. Um, believe me, I, I just gave up my medical director position to dedicate myself a little bit more to this specific project, to my wife, to my kids, to my family, uh, I love my job. I love the people that I work for. I love the people that I work with. But I'm now turning 42 next month. And I think this is the moment for me to to pay back and get a message out there that could potentially help one or two people. I only care if I can help one. If I can help one person and make a difference for that person's life the way it happened to me, I'll be extremely satisfied and this is not BS, but I hope that makes me feel as a better person. I'm, I'm looking for that next thing in my life that will create a gratifying feeling other than just practicing medicine. So follow me. I hope that you guys enjoyed this and please leave me a feedback. Thanks for joining and remember, sharing is caring. Goodbye for now.